Service at Boise State, Chris Birdsall. Chris, how are you doing today? Pretty good. All right. Glad to have Chris on. And uh, among his many specialties is uh, performance management and higher education. So we're going to do another show in higher education, which is one of our favorite topics to discuss here on the Big Tent. Well, I mean, we are. We all work at school at the School of Public Service at Boise State. So it's the area of policy we are most familiar with in some ways since we work in it. Well, and also don't. I also think that you can't really, when you're talking about policy in general, you can't get far away from higher ed because they really serve. I mean, universities serve such a key function in so many things that we do. Um, so uh, Chris uh, is one of the many interesting features or, or, or trivial facts about Chris is he's from Alaska uh, and his hometown Talkeet and has a cat for a mayor. Uh, he denies this, but the it's cat true. Is dead. Oh, oh my no. god, that's kind of a downer to start wow. the show with. Listen, Chris, we're, this is going to be a fun show, so I'm glad you uh, you put that out there because normally our, our shows are, are pretty sad. So whatever. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in Alaska and higher ed these days, right? With big budget cuts, the governor yep. is is really challenging the University of Alaska. Um, so can you tell us more about that story and kind of give us a little bit of background? Yeah. So uh, Governor Dunleavy uh, from Wasilla has proposed a number of sweeping cuts to the state budget, including a 41% cut to uh, the University of Alaska system's uh, state funding. So um, it's a huge cut. It turns out to be about 15% of their uh, operating revenue. Um, So this happened pretty late uh, without giving the university enough time to uh, come up with a plan on how to deal with such a massive cut. So, was students, there, sorry, was there any expectation that this was coming, or was this kind of out of the blue? So, I for a number of years, the legislature has been challenging the University of Alaska. Um, part of the reason I got into higher ed research was when I worked in the Alaska legislature, I staffed my boss on uh, the university budget uh, house finance subcommittee, and. I was pretty blown away at how uh, adversarial the uh, exchanges were between um, the legislators and the university administrators. So, so it's um, been a rocky relationship for a little yep, while. Yep, absolutely. And uh, the current president for several years has been sort of bracing for this. I think not this, not to this extent. Though. Okay. This is this is bigger than anyone thought it would so be. So this was a bit of a surprise yeah. at the extent that the cuts mm-hmm. were. Yeah, and just to put this in, I guess, uh, maybe like broader terms, I mean, this would be one of the largest cuts that we've seen to a public institution nationally, right, in history? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know uh, how other cuts have compared to this exactly, but, I mean, this is making big national news. All the higher ed news outlets are covering it pretty extensively, so... Um, certainly there's never been like this kind of just boom one-time cut like Mm-hmm. You have to deal with this next year. Yeah, and you you were starting to discuss that there really wasn't a plan yeah. in place for this. So the, the system's kind of scrambling at the moment, right? Absolutely. And this has already trickled down to the student level immediately. Um, there's the Alaska Performance Scholarship System where um, several high-performing Alaska high school students get scholarships up to $5,000 a year. Um they are not getting that. That mm. program is eliminated. So you have students summer before they have to enroll um, for the next year um, having to make decisions about, do I continue to go to college? Do I transfer? What do I do? So that's a large enough scholarship, I imagine, that that does make a difference in whether or not you're returning to college in the fall. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you wanted to, you know, it it takes time to apply for loans and, and things like this. So, um, yeah, it's not very good for students. 
Yeah, that's definitely uh, definitely concerning. And then if the students don't return, then you have a declining enrollment, which is further reducing the amount of funding that the university has to work with. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there was a paper, and I can't remember the authors, but that came out kind of recently that basically showed cuts to uh, state university systems do not improve student outcomes at all. So if that's what we're concerned about, this is not a good thing to do. So uh, I think we can all kind of imagine how this kind of trickles down to the student level and negatively impacts them. But there's also other kind of, as we talk about a lot in the show, that universities kind of play bigger roles in our communities. So there's also some discussion about the things that this is going to affect community-wise across Alaska, such as economic development drivers and these high-paying jobs at universities and this type of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what the expectations there are? Sure. So I haven't heard any specifics, but I could just take Fairbanks as an example. Fairbanks is Alaska's second largest city. Um, University of Alaska Fairbanks is like the main thing in town. The the main museum, the uh, hockey team is the main sporting event. Um, And they're already talking about major cuts to athletics. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's going to happen with the hockey team. But uh, yeah, I mean, um, are they going to be able to continue to have an arena in Fairbanks without the hockey team? Um, I think there are a lot of things that we don't know yet about the economic impact. But certainly... University of Alaska Fairbanks is is huge for that town and getting rid of it. I mean, they've talked a lot about the implications of closing the military bases up there. We have an Air Force base and an Army base. Um, you know, if if Fairbanks has to downsize dramatically, uh, it could be you know, something up to that kind of uh, damage. Well, it's probably, I mean, the universities tend to be major employers, so it's a lot of jobs that will probably be lost and and potentially kind of a brain drain concern as well, right? Yeah, the brain drain has always been a concern in Alaska. Uh, I left and planned to come back, but I didn't. Um, And now, you know, I think that's going to be accelerated. And the, the big problem is Alaska, you know, is still a very young state. We're still building there, right? Um, and so a, a higher education system is a big investment for the future. And it doesn't seem to make any sense uh, from an economic perspective to pull back on that investment all of a sudden. Um, so I, it seems like a really bad idea. Well, and of course, uh, universities also, and I think the brain drain argument's an important one. Um, you can imagine uh, all like the restaurants and bars and kind of tour shop that students and both faculty shop at. But I mean, uh, universities also do a lot to create social capital within communities as well. And so I can only imagine how this kind of undermines some of that activism that goes on. And maybe uh, we don't always like activism in our communities, but uh, at least people being there and being engaged and involved over the long term, because particularly when we think about university jobs, I mean, for the most part, we think about stability. Um, and as we do criticize the civil service for this sometimes, for the most part, when people start working in universities, they spend decades there, or at least their entire careers, but that creates long-term community members that are engaged and care about the communities, that are spending money regularly, that build this up. And so I guess we're just kind of pulling the rug out from under that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's all kinds of research out there about the positive externalities to educating your population, right, to, to having uh, an educated population. And taking away those opportunities from your your residents, your citizens, is not a good thing. All right, so we kind of agree that this may not have been the, the best plan. Why did they do this? Is that Alaska just in a terrible budget situation? Is that what it what's going on here? So Alaska depends on oil revenue for 88% of its state revenue. Um, oil prices have gone down in recent years and production has also gone down in Alaska. So the production thing I think is the bigger problem. We don't have a state income tax in Alaska 
And um, we also have a permanent fund dividend, where every year Alaskans get a check for you know anywhere from a thousand to right now they're proposing three thousand um, dollars. And Alaskans don't want to lose that. A lot of Alaskans don't. And so the trade-off is kind of being proposed. You're either going to get your dividend check or you're going to have you know social services, right? Um, that's how the debate is being presented. So yeah, Alaska has a revenue problem. They probably never should have gotten rid of the state income tax, but this is the situation we're in. So there's not a lot of political will to get rid of the dividend or to impose a state income tax. So it's like, where do you make the cuts? And um, I think in Alaska and a lot of other states, um, university systems are easy to pick on. Right. Well, this is uh, interesting stuff. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some how some of these uh, issues apply to other states, including Idaho. Hi, this is Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. You're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond. We're back on the uh, Big Tent with our special guest today, Chris Birdsaw from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We're talking about higher ed issues and uh, just wrapped up a conversation about Alaska and some of their budgeting challenges. Uh, but Chris, you are an expert in performance-based budgeting and higher education, correct? Yeah, that's what I, I did my dissertation on. Uh, so you know way more about it than uh, anybody else in the room, not to uh, insult Jackie or Valerie, but I don't know. <laughs> it's very okay, much I know about. very little about it. Uh, so can you kind of explain to, to us and the listeners kind of how this works and what the uh, ideas behind it are? Sure. So traditionally, uh, state funding for higher ed is based on enrollments and you know, how many students you have coming in each year. What performance-based budgeting goes by a few different names, performance-based budgeting, performance-based funding, or uh, outcomes-based funding. So what these policies do is shift a portion or all of the state funding from being based on enrollments to being based on uh, how schools do on certain student-related metrics like uh, retention, graduation rates. Um, They also have, some states have measures for faculty productivity. Um, So it's supposed to shift from inputs to outputs and performance. So like you graduate more students, you get more funding, you have more students in classes, you get more funding, these types of of things? Yeah, but again, the emphasis emphasis is moving away from more students in classes to um, more students graduating. Okay. Right. But as easy as that sounds, that's not really, it's not that cut and dry, right? There's some really unique challenges to this in higher ed? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the the policies, you know, the advocates have basically an assumption that universities can do better better in graduating students, right? Um, and that might be the case. But the problem is when you introduce performance metrics like this, you can do two things. Um, you can create perverse incentives, right? Or you can also um, make it harder Sorry, I have to back up there. You can do a couple things to improve performance. You can, you know, do better, get students to graduate easier, right? Or you can make it uh, easier for them to graduate, right? Reduce mm-hmm. quality. Yeah. So. Yeah, which is where you start to have concerns, right? That you're graduating students that really aren't prepared for, you know, or to have the skills that employers might expect them to have. Yeah. And so, sorry, an- another way you can do it is... Um, only enroll students who are more likely to graduate, mm. right? So um, increase admission standards. And that's one of the things I found in one of my papers was that um, one of the ways that schools are responding to this is to uh, take in better students, not take in students that you think are less likely to graduate. So if your goal is to, you know, your broad state goal is to increase educational attainment, 
all of a sudden you're taking in fewer uh, students that you, you know, need to actually increase those attainment numbers, right? You're taking in students that only students that you think are going to graduate. And so you're probably not bringing in first generation students or those coming from poor areas or rural areas exactly. or things. So these are populations yeah. that are now going to be increasingly overlooked. Um, yeah. If we move to this type of model. Yeah. And at a pretty at a very broad level, the United States is falling behind other countries in terms of educational attainment. And one of the reasons is um, we are not paying attention to this population. And so if we set up systems that incentivize not bringing those students in, uh, the problem is only going to get worse. Yeah, that definitely seems like a concern, especially if you're thinking about a state like Idaho, where the go on rate from high school to college is comparatively rather low anyways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess uh, part of the challenge of this, and we always talk about this in terms of the public service or whatever, is really defining what the outcomes that we expect out of higher education are, and it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to do it. Um, And no offense to our our state legislatures or politicians out there, but typically I think people outside the academy look at it and go, it's easy, you just graduate students. And you're like, well graduating in that piece of paper is one thing but it's all the work of years behind that that means something and that's not really easily to obtain um and i'll say from my own experience teaching like a multiple choice test is the easiest way to set like to give a student a grade it is the worst measure of learning um and i don't give them i give papers out to my grad students and they are a huge huge pain in the uh, you know what uh to grade but like that's the only way to really effectively measure these things um but that's not an efficient way to do it um and so if i was getting paid you know i was trying to if there was incentives for me to increase my efficiency i would just start giving out multiple choice tests but that'd be a terrible way to teach and to, to grade so how do we balance these out right this efficiency versus this quality um are there ways are states doing well at this at all it doesn't look like i mean most of the the you know a lot of the policies are new but they seem to just they don't focus on the on the mechanics of all this. It's just do better at graduating students, do better at retention. So they don't put any conditions like you also have to improve quality, right? And part of the part of the problem with that is if you develop a system to apply to all universities across your state, um, it has to work for all those universities, which might specialize and be very different, right? Have different kinds of students they bring in. So um, yeah, it's it's. A big challenge to design one of these systems that's actually going to do what I think they wanted to do, which is both improve quality and improve performance. So uh, I would like to back up and emphasize, because you just made a great point about there being a lot of different types of universities that specialize in different things. And yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges that are the, the biggest, I guess, mistakes that we make in higher ed in America is when we talk about higher ed, we think of like Harvard or Yale or USC or Texas or all these big but there's thousands of institutions and few of them look like that. I mean, there's only 186, 190 uh, research one universities, and that's typically what we think of. But they're much more common in places like Boise State or University of Idaho or Idaho State or Lewis and Clark, these smaller institutions. And Boise State's not really even that small. Um, the smaller institutions that really are serving communities and, and cities and not states and national universities. Um, and so I think that's one of the unique challenges here is how do you – how do you deal with this? How do you, you work that model in that encompasses both a Boise State and a Lewis and Clark? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, the research so far suggests that smaller universities struggle under these policies. Um, in Michigan, they implemented performance funding, I think, in 2012. And um, several small universities decided uh, rather than um, 
try to meet these performance benchmarks, they're just going to increase tuition, right? Because they're losing funding because they're not getting these benchmarks. They think it's impossible. And they even have uh, tuition caps. So institutions get penalized for raising tuition, but it was simple math for them. Like, we can either lose a bunch of state funding trying to attain a goal that's unattainable, or we can increase tuition. That's interesting and really kind of one of those unexpected <laughs> consequences, perhaps, of a, yeah. of a policy change that doesn't really seem helpful to anyone in that case. Yeah. And, you know, that another thing that makes me think of is, you know, all the all these changes that are happening in higher ed funding, all these battles, it, it's leading uh, institutions to scale back as much as possible their dependence on the on the state right and that's not necessarily a good thing because that often is going to mean tuition increases but if you're worried that you know on any given year the legislature is going to introduce a performance metric that you can't meet or slash your funding by 40 percent you don't want to be reliant on that you got to find other other revenue and so the the broader implication is you know the public university could be disappearing well, no, that's a really interesting point. I think that's something we want to loop back to in our, our final segment. Uh, but before we wrap up this segment, I do want to ask you, um, how many states have, have, imp- or have adopted these type of metrics? And are there any like kind of indicators or, or predictors that, you know, what types of states are, are tell us what type of states are adopting these things? Because it's certainly not every state, right? Yeah. So it's I think the number is in the mid 30s right now. Uh, many more are, are implementing it. It's kind of policy is just sort of seen as the silver bullet for solving problems in public higher ed. But of course, none of the evidence shows that um, it is improving anything. But uh, one of the things that I found is that um, these policies are more likely to be implemented in places that are experiencing um, uh, rapid increases in tuition, right? So when you have tuition increases, that always uh, increases scrutiny of a a university, right? Um, The other thing I found is that States with consolidated governing boards, right, um, compared to uh, decentralized governing boards. So uh, a centralized uh, consolidated governing board um, is there. They have much more professional staff, right? They have a clo- closer relationship with the legislature. And I think the, the difference there is that um, these consolidated boards um, talk with legislators more frequently and they understand the legislature and the higher education administrators understand each other's values better. All right. So interesting stuff. Um, So we are going to take another quick break, but then we're going to be back and and talk about this idea of is the public university uh, disappearing? Um, We'll be back in just a minute. KRBX is Radio Boise, the Treasure Valley's only community radio station. Like us at facebook.com slash Radio Boise. Love us at 89.9 FM. All right, we're back on the Big Tent with our special de- uh, guest today, Chris Birdsall, um, talking about higher education. And so, Chris, in our last segment, you made a really interesting point, um, uh, basically about uh, uh, states increasing their tu- or state universities increasing their tuition, relying less on the state legislature for funding, and the big questions and challenges this brings for the idea of public. Um, if our universities aren't being funded through tax dollars anymore and through state legislatures as they become more independent. Um, so can you talk more about that? Like, what does that what does that mean for us? Like, why should we care our listeners be concerned about this as an issue? Well, I mean, there's so many different things happening with with public universities. So first of all, with the with these performance funding policies, uh, often they have incentives built in for graduating more STEM students. Right. So they um, 
put in incentives to emphasize certain kinds of majors and think you know usually shifting away from liberal arts right so one of the big concerns about you know public universities is that as a result of these changes all of a sudden if you attend a public university you're not going to be able to get a liberal arts education right you're not going to um, be majoring in history or philosophy um, and you know we're already seeing that in Fairbanks actually um, a few years back they got rid of their philosophy program which you know a lot of people say well who cares like we don't need a bunch of philosophy majors walking around it's like yeah you're right but uh, what a philosophy program does is you know I didn't major in philosophy but I did take a philosophy class from a really good professor those professors are not going to be in these public institutions anymore because there's no philosophy program to support And then them. you miss out on like learning critical thinking skills and, and building an argument. You know, these types of skills that are actually very important for many types of careers. Well, yeah. I, I will show, throw this out here. Um, just as, and for many of our listeners to know that I'm the MPA director at, at Boise State, um, a lot of the research shows that students pick uh, programs based on these hard skills like cost-benefit analysis and statistics and all this type of stuff, but actually what employers say are the most important skills for their employees are the soft skills. Building arguments public speaking um being able to uh do like the politicking to, to build networks and all of this actually end up being more important and more uh, better predictors of employee success um and there's a lot of research out there that shows that now so as much as we like to pick on the the liberal arts and the soft skills that we teach at higher ed most employers say those are more important yeah absolutely people don't want to hire robots right and so the incentives are set up to train robots oh, no, no. We, we want to hire ro- we want to buy robots one time we don't want to pay people on a normal basis to do that absolutely yep so uh I, I think this really surrounds kind of this bigger idea of the publicness of higher education when we say by publicness i think there's if we think about this on a spectrum where at one end is a completely public university that's open to everybody and is funded by taxpayers and all this and the other end is a completely private university that's closed off um a lot of our higher education institutions are sliding that scaled more towards private as they become raising tuition become less dependent on the states and there's a lot of good examples of this um, one is jackie was reminding me earlier uh, lsu athletics uh, i guess this week to do some criticisms about their spending said hey we'll just be independent of the university we'll just go do our own thing we'll just the, the university can do its own thing so i mean is that something we should be concerned about as these universities become less public so to speak like what does that mean for all of us yeah so you're accountable to who gives you money right and so the less stake the public has through state funding in these universities the less accountable these universities will be to the people right um so that's it's it's kind of paradoxical really that these performance funding policies are supposed to increase accountability but what they're doing is leading uh institutions to be less um try to make moves to be less dependent on the state they become less public and therefore less accountable right so it's it's interesting um and when we talk about you know the, the changing funding sources of universities like I remember maybe like a decade ago was it I think in Virginia with the public institutions some of them have like 10% of their funding coming from the state and so there have been questions like is this even considered a public institution when you're getting to such a low percentage of your funding coming from the state yeah so going back to performance funding one interesting thing i found in uh, one of the papers i did was that um, institutions that are less dependent on the state um, tend to do better than institutions oh, that are more dependent, right? So you would think that, I think, 
you know, the people that design these policies imagine that um, institutions that are more dependent on the state are going to be more responsive, right? It's like a dosage. But it turns out that those that are less dependent do better. And it's probably because they tend to be the bigger, you know, uh, Indiana University Bloomington, for example, than, you know, Indiana University East, right? So they already have in other funding sources that they can kind of continue to do what they, they're doing well, where the other universities start to struggle. Exactly. Yeah. And they have, they have room to do better, right? Where a lot of these other universities are already struggling, right? There's not a lot they can do to, uh, you know, pull the levers and actually make change happen. Yeah, and I also say that probably uh, dependence on the state for funding comes with a, a loss of adaptability and a flexibility, a loss of your ability to, to innovate as a university. Um, and what I can tell you is most, uh, and from my own experience, most of the universities that do well are the ones that are innovating constantly and offering new majors and new curriculums. And these other ones that are bottom tier that are, are kind of fitting in with this, this legislative cycle aren't as flexible and all that. And that probably has a lot of effects as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the performance funding just uh, reinforces that by putting conditions on all the funding you get, right? It reduces your autonomy. Well, and I think this uh, goes along with, and we had a show a couple of weeks ago where we talked about some of the issues in higher ed, but I think this really, you know, um, dovetails well with that and just this kind of bigger conversation about where the university, where the academy fits into our society in modern America. And I think that's really where this quote-unquote war on higher education is coming from and, and a lot of the debates that's gone on is that we don't really know where the university fits in anymore. And I think most of us know it's a really important thing uh, we just don't can't quite define it. Uh, so with that being said, um, any other like interesting challenges or, or things our listeners should be looking out for or maybe want to read more about that are out there in higher ed um, that's being discussed and debated? I mean, certainly look at the Alaska situation more. Um, it'll be really, you know, they're still negotiating this. It's not clear where it's going to go yet. You know, the university might get some funding back. But if these cuts do happen, um, yeah, we'll have to see where things go, right? If if the if there's immediate evidence that this is having a negative impact, maybe states will em- emulate it. But if um, you know there aren't clear negative consequences in the first couple of years, other states might follow suit. And um, I will point out that the you know architect of this plan, uh, Donna Arduin, she's um, from uh, a consulting firm, uh, Laffer Moore and uh, are doing econometrics, I think it's called, but basically Donna are doing has gone state to state, uh, basically with the mission to implement cuts like this. So if this turns out to not look so bad, um, it's totally possible that we'll see it in other places. That's interesting. That it's that this is kind of a strategic plan that some people have for kind of going from state to state to work on. Yeah, yeah. She's she's gone to California and Florida, and I don't think things worked out too well there. Um, her colleague uh, Arthur Laffer was the architect of the big cuts in Kansas, which Kansas is still reeling from, right? Uh, so, yeah, I, I will not be surprised if we see this pop up in other states. All right. Uh, thank you, Chris, for being here today. That was an interesting uh, conversation about higher ed, and I think I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, but this has been the uh, Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 uh, FM, Caldwell, Boise. Thank you.